Hi, everybody. You're listening to Aid Evolved, and I'm your host, Rowena Luke. Today, we're bringing you the very last episode of Season 3, where we speak with donors and investors who are driving new ways to deliver aid and improve lives in Africa. Our guest today is someone that many of you have asked for in the past, so I'm thrilled to be bringing to you Chuck Slaughter. Chuck is known for a couple of different things. For one, he's the founder of Living Goods, which supports over 10,000 community health workers to deliver health care to 8 million people at the last mile across Africa. Some of the things I love about Living Goods, one, the vast majority of their staff are based in Africa, in the countries we're trying to serve. Two, it's always prioritized, developing a cost-effective approach. And three, their model demonstrated a reduction in child deaths by a staggering 27% based on a randomized controlled trial run by Innovations for Poverty Action in 2014. But that's not the end of Chuck's story. He's also a senior advisor at TPG Rise, a $10 billion impact investing platform. Before that, he founded a travel clothing company. Yeah, you heard me right. Pretty random, right? A company he grew into $100 million in annual sales. And if all of that wasn't enough to keep him busy, he's also a director of the Horace W. Goldsmith Foundation, where he makes grants in digital innovations in healthcare and education. There aren't a lot of people who can bring together the lived experience of a founder, funder, donor, and entrepreneur the way that Chuck can. In the hour ahead, pay attention to some of the nuggets of wisdom that Chuck drops. Even though he doesn't come from a tech background, he makes a pretty compelling argument on why game-changing innovations need to be digital first. He had some pretty strong words to share about why it's easier to build great tech inside of a for-profit startup than inside a charity, and what aid workers and the development community are getting wrong about open source. Stick around for the end when he dives into the realities of scaling a successful innovation and how the private sector and government have to work hand in hand. Just before we dive in for today, public service announcement. Not only is this the last episode of this season, this is the last episode of Aid Evolved. Don't worry, I'm still going to be podcasting. But we've been super busy in the back end, shaking things up. And the next time you hear from me, I'll be back with a whole new lineup, a whole new season, and even a new name for the podcast. I'm so excited. I can't wait to share with you what we've been cooking up. But that's about all I can say for now. So if you want to get the big announce when it comes out, don't forget to subscribe to the show. Now, let's get back to Chuck Slaughter. My first question for Chuck was, how did this kid who studied architecture and business in school and then decided to set up a travel clothing company end up becoming such a believer in digital first? Yeah, so the important thing is, like, I am not digital born. So first of all, I'm, you know, I'm 60, <laughs> so that sort of puts me out of the running. I, I'm from the Bay Area, but I didn't start a tech company. So it's like not, yeah. it's not in my DNA the way it is for a lot of people, you know, like. Yeah. Um, but I have had a front row seat watching digital transformation play out 
in both my for-profit company and then in Living Goods, the nonprofit. Travelsmith, which was, was my the company I started in the early 90s, was a direct-to-consumer travel gear business that started out, this will sound make me sound very old, it started out as a paper catalog. But over the course of the dozen years that I built and ran it, it transformed from being primarily a paper-based analog business to being a e-commerce and digital forward business. And we had a very successful uh, exit for that business and no small part because we successfully transitioned to a digital first business model. And this, you know, not surprisingly, a version of the same thing happened at Living Goods. You know, Living Goods is the community health worker nonprofit that I started 15 years ago. And when we started, it was completely analog. It was trying to, you know, take the traditional community health worker model and make it work more effectively, efficiently, but using foot power in paper. And about halfway through that 15-year journey, we saw that that digital adoption was beginning to transform so many industries around us. Retail, you know, the rise of Amazon, transportation, the rise of, of Uber, hospitality, the rise of Airbnb, and media, virtually everything, you know, finance, you can keep going and going. And in Absolutely. almost every case, not every, but almost every case, it were it was the digital first new entrants that were dominant, that, that were upending their, you know, the dominant players in each of those industries. Amazon took down, really took down Walmart. You know, Airbnb surpassed, you know, the big hotel companies in valuation. Uber destroyed the taxi business. You can go on and on. And, and so that kind of digital transformation seemed obvious to me that it was going to be inevitable in other sectors. And these were the biggest, some of the biggest sectors in, in, in our lives that in the economy are healthcare and education and government. Right. And yeah. it, we understand why it's going slower in those places, but it, that seemed inevitable. And so we took a, a key inflection in this journey at Living Goods was about eight or nine years ago when we decided that we had to pursue this transformation. And, and more specifically, even though it was farther in the future, we really decided this wasn't going to be feature phones, which were the initial sort of tool, you know, you were at Demagi, feature phones were the only thing that you were, you were designing for initially. We really mm -hmm. decided that it was going to be smartphones because you looked at smartphone adoption. If you looked at the markets and what smartphone adoption curves were looking like, they all were moving super fast and in, even faster than the mobile network operators were projecting. And so one key lesson that we learned on this journey was when it comes to technology, you really have to be forward thinking. It sounds obvious, but you have to be thinking about what technologies you do you think are going to dominate the landscape in three, five, 10 years out. And it takes years to develop a new model that's really powerful. By the time you've figured it out, the technology landscape will have changed. Yeah, I mean, that makes a ton of sense to me. And I think it's, it's not obvious. You, know, you think about a, a woman in a village, you know, that doesn't have power, doesn't have connectivity. And at the time, a lot of people were like, you're crazy. Like, what are you doing? Why are you even like smartphones? Like you're, you're out of your mind. And maybe at that time you were, um, but you just have to think ahead. Like it's not about just building for today. It's about building for five years out. 
The other thing that I really like about what you're saying there is, is that aspect of digital first. I think there's a lot of organizations that says, okay, digital, we'll just layer digital on top of whatever else, you know, we'll take some flow and we'll turn it into digital. But Amazon and Uber, they don't just tack on digital. It's baked into their infrastructure. It's like the the core of how the organization runs. And that's what you built with Living Goods, even though you don't have a tech background yourself. Like, how did you do that? (laughs) Well, let me let me comment on this digital first thing, which is, you know, again, the 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 other big learning here is that though these institutions, whether they're companies or education systems or healthcare systems that, you know, that were around before the iPhone, which by the way, are most of the institutions in society, they've been really disadvantaged. And most of them take take this bolt on. They do they make one of two mistakes. They either say, we're going to take something we did in an analog fashion and try to digitize that. I call it digitizing the analog. It never works. Whereas if you look at Amazon or Airbnb, they created an entirely new model that was digital first. They weren't trying to digitize the hotel industry or the the retail industry. They're saying, no, we're creating a new model. And the the key theme in digital first really is, is really two simple concepts. It's really it that are, that are intimately linked. It's really about putting the customer first, whether that's your patient, your learner, you know, your citizen, it's putting that person first and giving them the power of convenience, making whatever it is that you're offering just radically easier to access. You know, whether you're talking about your TV shows, your taxi, or your retail purchase, you can now get those things wherever, whenever, and however you want. And isn't that the way it should be for healthcare and for education and for government services? And I just think it's, it's, it's going slower in those sectors because they're more bound up with government bureaucracy and public finance. But the, you look at the power of these transformations in all these other sectors, it really is inevitable. But you're not going to get there by trying to digitize the analog. You have to think of like these digital first entrance. So the the bolt-on thing doesn't tend to work. I really encourage when I talk to, you know, organizations who I'm trying to support, I said, you have to pretend you're this digital first startup, you know, entrant, who you're competing with, by the way. And the the challenge is it's really, really hard. There are relatively few examples of platforms that were digital first that have really successfully transformed. Chuck, what I find interesting about you calling out customer first and you calling out convenience It sounds like the future. I I totally agree with you on that front. The other thing that I like about that modeling is the inherent respect that it gives to the communities that we serve. I think a lot of people talk about beneficiaries or even victims or, you know, like the, the poor, those poor people in Africa, how can we help them out? But at the end of the day, even if you have very low purchasing power, people will choose platforms, solutions, and services that treat them with respect, you know, that that wins their attention, wins their engagement. There's a reason, one of the reasons people don't go to health, to health facilities is, yes, because, you know, the roads are tough and it's expensive, but also because health facilities are terrible. They're often terrible. They often treat people like crap. Yeah. And why would you, why would you make the effort? Why would you go through that hassle? I think there's, 
There's a great success story of Wave, which is like a mobile wallet in West Africa, which is winning for many reasons. One of, but one of the reasons being because it actually creates like a user-friendly interface for the Senegalese people to manage their money and exchange. And that's not something that any of the big telco operators ever did. But once they did, among other reasons, they got their market share. So I think it's 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 interesting how you take that piece that draws both from a deep-seated sense of respect for the community and also your background as a, as a social entrepreneur, as someone that has built businesses and knows what it's like uh, to create a sustainable I business mean, I'll, model. I'll put it more specifically. We will, we're going to make a huge leap in healthcare when, when we're building healthcare delivery that the patients love, that is yeah. radically easier where they're, that they love, that it's easy to use, it's easy to access, they want to come back to it over and over again, the tie engagement. You know, we've, another way I put this, we've spent a generation and billions of dollars on, you know, what, I hate the acronyms in our space, on behavior change communications, BCC. I'm like, <laughs> I'm from the private sector, we call it marketing. And trying to, the, the idea behind which is sort of our, trying to persuade people to do things that's you know, to the benefit of their health. Most people know what good healthcare, what better health looks like. I think the most powerful thing we need to do now is just to make it easier for people to access care. That will be the radical transformation in the next 10 years is when we accomplish that. As much as Chuck believes in the power of digital first, he was also careful to ground his words in the sober understanding that technology alone is just one part of this intervention. I got to frame this first, which is when we're talking about healthcare delivery, I don't think digital alone gets us the outcomes that we're looking for. You know, whether you're a funder or an implementer in healthcare, I want to be really clear. I'm a strong believer in technology, but technology by itself is not enough to get the job done. I mean, in most cases, eventually you have to get somebody to a provider to get tested, to get treated, and to be counseled. And so I think it's the effective integration of technology into the physical healthcare system. That's really the hard bit. The Lugans model we call the DESK model. The DESK is an acronym, and the, but the metaphor is a system that has four legs. The D is for digital, but that's just one of the legs. The other three legs are imperative. The table doesn't stand unless all four legs are strong. In no particular order, one of the legs is around a supervision. So health providers, whether they're community-based or facility-based, need to be effectively supervised. So that's a, a lot of people look at living goods and sort of say that a key piece of our cigar sauce is effective performance management, effective using data um, to effectively manage the performance of health providers. So that's the supervision piece. The C is for compensation. In Africa, community-based health providers are still, for the most part, not compensated. Which is uh, crazy. It's insane. They're the poorest people in the health delivery system. And most countries are still asking them to work for free. No, nobody asks the minister to work for free, but we're asking this poor lady. So it's, but it's not just having government budgets that pay them, we also really believe living goods that it has to be smart compensation, the right level and in the right form. So we've been real pioneers in using incentives, again, that's linked to this notion of performance optimization. So they get 
incentive, they get part fixed payment and then part incentive payments for achieving targets that are tied to the end outcomes that we're after. There's also supplies. So we, in our desk metaphor, we call that E for equipment, but it includes both their technology, the phones, basic tools like thermometer and such, but it also includes the medical supplies, you know, treatments for malaria, diarrhea, rapid tests, and those sorts of things. So without those basic supplies, these health providers really are going to have a hard time saving, saving kids' lives. So those are the four legs, digital technology, supervision, supplies, and, and compensation. And they all have to work together in an integrated fashion. And we've seen over time, if you have one leg that suffers, you don't get the impact. You don't get the, the, the outcomes. Technology can actually support all four of those legs. And yes, I think there are some outcomes you can get with digital on its own, but I think they're, I actually do think they're limited, you know, particularly makes, in Africa. That because, makes you know, how are we saving lives? You know, we're getting women to deliver in facility. We're treating, we're trying to treat every case of malaria, diarrhea, and pneumonia. And we're making sure the people who have urgent needs get quickly to the right provider. Technology can be a lubricant, you know, an accelerant and can help drive out costs, but it's, it doesn't get the job done on its own. And we, you know, and, and it's importantly, there's two other important characteristics here that I think you have to show that when you put these elements together, you could actually get the outcomes. Having been on this journey for 15 years and having funded many things in this space, there are many examples where you try to do all these things and you don't see the outcome. And so that's mm. why Living Goods um, has put a huge emphasis on evidence. They've conducted two very large scale RCTs, randomized control trials, and in a host of other independent studies looking at outcomes. And very, very, you know, fortunate that these two RCTs demonstrated dramatic improvements in child survival. Both of them showed a 25 to 30% reduction in all-cause mortality, which is great. We've also seen huge improvements in immunization rates, you know, 50, 60% improvements in immunization rates. Technology is, wow. a, is a big contributor to that, being able to track immunization defaulters and dropouts. But the other ingredient here that is not discussed enough, and again, where technology can be a driver, is that you can have all these things, you can demonstrate the impact. But if you, the model that you are running is too expensive, you can't scale it. And so I, I think the development world, as a general matter, is not paying nearly enough attention to return on investment and to cost. You know, there's a lot of focus on outcomes and evidence, that, which is growing. That's a great thing, but not nearly enough attention on, on cost. And we, and we started from the beginning, was a founding principle of living goods, that whatever we do, it has to be fiscally feasible in these, in these you know, financially strapped settings. You know, so if you, if you create a solution, a community-based delivery solution that's really successful, but it costs $15 per capita, you can't scale it. These governments, they, 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 the 20 poorest countries are probably only spending 30 to $50 per capita on, on the entire healthcare system, including you know, facilities yeah. and everything else. And if you tell them they got to spend another 20, 
it's just your it's magical thinking that that will scale. Mm-hmm. And so we we've been maniacal thinking about how you put these elements together in the most radically cost efficient way as possible. And the reason that living goods is scaling is that the evidence is there, but the cost is is fiscally feasible. So living goods delivers this comprehensive set of uh, health services, immunization, maternal pregnancy, maternal care, treating childhood infections, malaria, diarrhea, pneumonia, family planning, nutrition, at all in cost of less than $4 per cap. Wow. How is it able to hit such low cost, such a low cost? I mean, that's, a, that's a longer conversation. We probably have five. <laughs> but I mean, it's, partly it's just by, by having a focus on it, say, look, we can't let it go over this amount. Otherwise, we know it's something you're managing too. And, like, yeah, an we're really, we're really managed. And so we, you know, for example, compare, you know, there's a small number of other programs that pay community health workers. We pay less, but it's hmm. paying $20 a month is less than some of the other people, but the other ones aren't scaling. And the $20 mm-hmm. is infinitely more than the 95% of places that are paying zero. And the, the, the most recent RCT demonstrated that it was effective, that people remained engaged. And yeah, would I like them to make a hundred bucks a month? Yeah. But no country can scale that yet. You know, we, that makes sense. We that makes that sense. to be the case in the future. I asked Chuck if he could share some of the challenges that he faced in building a digital-first organization like Living Goods. And what were some of the key assets that helped him figure out the way through those challenges? He touches on two key strategic decisions that I'd encourage you to pay attention for. One is the build or buy debate. If you want to go the tech route, should you build the technology in-house or should you buy something off the shelf? The other thing Chuck touches on is where do you turn to for the innovation that you want to build? Should you turn to innovators from the private sector, startups, entrepreneurs? Or if you're working in the healthcare space, should you turn to the public sector and all the innovations that spin out of aid or government programs? Here's what he had to say. Having observed this through Living Goods and through my lens as a grant maker, there are two key ingredients. If, if you're a nonprofit, I don't care what sector you're in that are try, that's trying to pull off digital transformation. There, there are a lot of things you got to get right, but there are two basic ingredients that we learned the hard way that you really have to, to nail. And that comes down to people and partnerships. Here, let's, I'll start with the partnerships one because it's, it's sort of the obvious. When Limited first started experimenting with digital tools, we built this stuff in-house. So there were two really powerful learnings that I've seen both through my foundation work and at, and at Living Goods. And as I said, this comes down to people and partnerships. At Living Goods, we started by developing technology solution in-house. So we built our first Android app in-house at Living Goods. We hired two young like 20-something Kenya hackers who built our initial tool. The good news was those initial tools really worked. I mean, they passed the initial, you know, the health workers used them. We successfully got, you know, really transitioned off of paper. And so they sort of passed that test. But we quickly realized that the way we engineered this was 
you know, was pretty suboptimal from a technology point of view and that we were not technologists as, a, as an organization and we really needed yeah. to bring, you know, a really stronger, robust enterprise technology solution to this. And we were lucky that right. we found a, an outside technology partner early. Um, Who was it? And that was a, an, uh, another nonprofit called Medic Mobile. Gotcha. And so we ended up co-creating with Medic Mobile their first Android solution for community health. Um, Fascinating. Um, and, and I think that's a big question in a lot of people's minds, like build or buy, particularly if you're a healthcare organization and you were created by a technologist, yeah. for example. And it's oh, you keep on coming back to it, you know, like it'll be cheaper to keep in-house, you'll have more control. Yeah. But if you partner with someone, then they bring their expertise, but then you have that external dependency. How did you establish that, you know, that relationship, that trust? Like, how did you know that you could run your digital first health program on someone else's yeah. technology? Well, wait, look, we knew we didn't have the skills. So that you can bring it in. Yeah. <laughs> you know, people, Chuck, yeah. hire somebody, get a CTO. Right. Well, you know, we're going to get to that in a second. I will tell you one interesting anecdote about this, which was that Medical uh -huh. was also based in San Francisco and they, they were looking for <laughs> office, they were looking for a office space and we actually offered them space in our office. So for, okay, for so like merger for like three or three years, it wasn't a merger, but we really yeah, yeah. were physically joined at the hip for those first three years. <laughs> but when we were when we were co-creating this first Android solution for community health workers, we were doing it literally in the same physical space. That's um, great. And so that, That's great. You know, I mean, that, MOUs aside, being able to wave the app in front of the developer and be like, fix this bus, like nothing, no MOU yeah, beats I mean, that. yeah, it, built, <laughs> it created a lot of trust and collaboration. Yeah. And so uh, moved to San Francisco. And then, you know, they had a, they had a team of people who were, who were strong technologists. And, and then they helped us build a much more modern, much better graphical interfaces, better dashboards, you know, all this stuff took a huge, huge step up. You know, side note, that partnership has had challenges and every partnership does. Every uh, marriage does. Yes, exactly. Is life. And, you know, one reservation I have, I think, to a point I made earlier, is that Medic Mobile is great. They've gone from strength to strength in many ways. But directionally, I think I'm more fan of partnerships with for profit technology partners for the reason we discussed earlier, which is they have access to way more capital. Simply put, I think the for-profits are far more likely to build enterprise-worthy, high-service-level platform. I think they're going to get better. But m when people ask me now, mostly I'm recommending for-profit partners. Let's talk more about that. Like, what is it, foundation? Like, it's, it's a whole sector that you're talking about, like all the nonprofit tech providers versus all the for-profit tech providers. What is the structural yeah. difference that you're seeing yeah. that makes a for-profit entity build better code? Directionally speaking, I think a hard message I have for the donor community is that when we're talking about technology, we really need to be thinking about employing private firms to a much higher degree because they're better at it. And most importantly, the way that they're financed gives them a long-term structural advantage to be better at delivering enterprise-worthy technology. And they have more capital to spend. No, that's the reason. You know, nonprofits don't have equity. It's really, really hard for nonprofits to do the kind of R&D and technology because it's all project funded for the most part. And there's a stronger system of accountability in the for-profits, in my opinion. They have much deeper accountability to their funders, I think. And 
you know, this is a trickier part, but I think there's also greater accountability to their customers. You know, if they don't satisfy their customers, they're out of business. Whereas there's a lot of nonprofits that stick around for a long time because they're good at raising money, not because they're great at satisfying their end customers. There's going to be way, way more technology solutions that come out of the private sector than come out of the NGO sector. It's just where the money is. It's, you know, it's <laughs> just that simple. No, I, I was curious what you would say if you were sitting down right now talking to Global Fund or USAID or WHO or UNICEF about your position. You know, private sector is going to go to better technology. Knowing what you know, you know, of all the investment that's gone into these open source, global goods, et cetera, like, yeah, what is your, what is your guidance for, for donors on, on, on delivering tech that can actually do some good? You know, just building on the theme that we were talking about, I think if you're a global fund or the World Bank, what I would encourage you to do is look at how technology is transforming healthcare in the middle income and developed economies. It's not open source. It's, yeah. you know, you know, even these socialized healthcare systems in Europe, the technologies they're using are coming from for-profit SaaS providers and system integrators and, 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 and so forth. Do they have their problems? Yes. Are some of them too expensive? Yes. Are some of them not have the evidence we want, but overall, you know, they're not, they're not using open source because, I mean, they're, they're, they're turning to the private, they're turning to the private sector. And again, one of the main reasons is, is there's way, way, way more capital going into building strong solutions built by private firms. I have to say, I'm a little perplexed by this whole open source thing. I have a sense that it's driven by the idea, I think a little bit of a, a, a misconceived notion I suspect it's driven by this misconceived notion that open source should be cheaper and it isn't. I think most people who do technology will tell you, well, first of all, it isn't cheaper in the long term. You still have to configure it. You have to support it. And, and in the long term, the open source solutions are probably going to be inferior because there's just not as much investment going into them. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and the way that open source products are governed doesn't, you know, I think it, it's harder to govern a really a broad open source tool to make it as great as a tool that's getting, you know, a half a billion dollars investment from, from pri private firms. There, you know, there are one or two, ex you know, you can find a couple of exceptions to this. You know, probably the most notable top one to talk about in public health is DHIS. So for most hmm. of your listeners will know what that is. It's a right. open source you know, data warehousing system for health data. It's like an information management it's, system. It's a yeah, it's a, it's a data warehousing and reporting tool. It's used by over 100 countries, and it was created by the University of Oslo, and it's continued to be funded by, you know, the Scandinavian countries, by USAID, by Gates. But most really good technologists will tell you that the techno their technology is out of date. And they're scrambling to figure out digital first solutions. And they're just, it's never, because of the way it's structured and financed, it's never going to be as good. And so, yes, it's open source and yes, it achieved wide adoption. And, and by that measure, it's a huge success. But is it going to be the best solution 10 years from now? I really don't think so. Now, it's all well and good for Chuck to give advice to donors and grant makers. But what's it like to be? a grant maker 
Chuck has the unique perspective as trustee of the Horace W. Goldsmith Foundation of administering his own grants in digital innovations in healthcare and education. And I appreciate how self-aware Chuck is in this conversation about the challenges and the failure rate of such grant-making activities. Turns out, digital transformation is hard. Let me just sort of share my experience as a funder. So, you know, I've been a trustee at the Worst Goldsmith Foundation for almost the same amount of time that, I, that I've been running Living Goods and doing private equity. I did not know that. You don't talk about that as much. Which depends on the uh, But it's so hear about it. all three things I've been doing for about 15 years. You know, the, the impact investing, huh. the grant banking, huh. and building this organization. And you wear a lot of hats. You got to talk about time management or something. I don't know. <laughs> well, I just, I just sent my youngest child off to boarding school, so I have a little more time now. Congrats. But, uh, you know, the Goldsmith Foundation supports, you know, probably like 200 different grantees. And I personally oversee about 35 grant relationships. Wow. And most of those organizations were born, you know, before the digital age. And, and as of the last five years, you know, I've really turned to 80% of my grant making towards trying to help these organizations pursue the benefits of digital transformation in a way that will serve their beneficiaries better, faster, cheaper. Interesting. There aren't a lot of organizations doing that, right? Are there other foundations that there's a emphasis? Small, there's a, a small number of foundations that are trying to do it, but not, not nearly enough. And, you know, many foundations huh. dabble in it, but the legacy <laughs> foundations have this, the legacy foundations have the same problem as the people who are planning, <laughs> which is they weren't born in this and they don't have technology mm. people on their management, senior management teams or in their boards of directors. And so, right. But you can just write your job is to write the check, right? Yeah. So you could just write the check to the organization and they do the digital transformation. Well, no, is, it, is it not that simple? Just a little bit of background here. Living Goods has been very successful at raising money. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons is that we always look for smart money. So we're, we're, Living Goods is never looking just for a check. We're always looking mm-hmm. for funding partners who bring expertise, connections, knowledge, wisdom, scar tissue what have you, that can help us be way better. And that's a real, uh, that's a positive screen we use. And it's been hugely, hugely successful for us. Our biggest funder, for example, is the Children's Investment Fund. And they're one of the leading experts in, in public health and in research and evaluation. And on both of those, they've been absolutely trans, their knowledge into those things, as much money as they invest in living goods, it's their knowledge Mm. in public health that's been way, way more valuable. They taught us how to do RCTs and the RCTs, nice. the first RCT, you know, changed the entire trajectory for, for living good. So I think wow. funders who are interested in digital transformation have to understand it. They have, they themselves have to be great at it. And so what's happened on our journey, you know, at Goldsmith is we've tried many, many times to inject money into nonprofits to help them pursue this transformation. And I would say, you know, 80% of those grants have not achieved, we hoped. Really? Um, Why is it so low? You know, for the reasons that I've been saying, because these organizations are not digital born, you know, I, I, I was starting to say before, there are two key ingredients. We talked about one, which are partnerships. They struggle mm-hmm. to find the right partnerships. And one of the reasons they struggle with that is that they don't have the right people. You know, they don't have, tend to have people who understand technology, 
in their senior leadership, you know, starting with the CEOs, you know, and the other plates that, that we don't talk about enough that's imperative to have digital expertise is in the governance, in the boardroom. And so if the board doesn't understand this, how can they guide the strategy? How can they advise the CEO on how to build a senior team that can help them pull off this very, very hard thing, digital transformation? You know, so we've tried a lot of things. We've funded research, we've funded board searches, we've funded CTOs, we've funded digital projects, of course. And there's a couple of successes, but there's, there's more scar tissue, you know, and good, which is all good. You know, foundations should be taking risks. And, you know, we, we should have failure rates that are more like venture capital. I don't think that would be a healthy thing in, in philanthropy. I think <laughs> yeah. not everybody agrees with me on that. But, but I will say what, yeah. what that has led me to as, as a grant maker is going forward, you know, more of the, I would say 80% of the new grantees I'm bringing in are digital born. You know, they understand the connection between the digital and the analog. And whether if they're working in education, they have to work with teachers and health and education systems, but they're designing their interventions with digital at the center. And so that's, that's what's changing and how I think about the programming. But we have a couple of successes, you know. One of the last topics that Chuck and I touched on was the inevitable question of scale. Once you have that innovation, once you know that it works, how do you get it to last? One other thing I would add, that the topic of your show is aid evolved. We talked about cost. I think the other big area of evolution in aid is, is broadly about how, how we're financing the scale of, of successful solutions. And, or, or not. not as and, <laughs> you know, what I'm seeing both with my living goods implementation hat and in my funder hat is really the trend here, and I think what Living Goods has been particularly successful at in the last couple of years, is rewriting the financial compact between nonprofits and governments. And I think it used to be the nonprofits, the norm was nonprofits would come, raise philanthropy, come in, try to demonstrate something, you know, and then just try to raise as much money as they can to do more of that thing. That sounds about right. And... The path to scaling successful solutions, particularly where government is a key partner, from a financial point of view, was never, you know, really sorted out. And, and increasingly, you know, what Living Goods is doing is rather than just trying to drive scale on philanthropy is saying, we have to be in a co-financing, co-implementing partnership with government. And so all of the growth at Living Goods now is going, only going into countries, districts, and counties where we have a signed agreement with the government will they, where we will co-finance the scale-up of a digitally-powered community health solution. Where I talked about this, the, the four legs of the desk, where for the most part, the government is, is committing to pay for the compensation, the supplies, and the supervision. And Living Goods is coming in with additional support behind that, supervise the supervisors, for example, and then funding a lot of the digital piece, at least particularly in, in the early phase. And that's enabling us to scale to much greater heights than we would have if we were using just philanthropy or doing sort of the, you know, uh, the magical thinking of, yeah, we'll do our part. We hope, we hope the government does theirs. Maybe they will, maybe they won't. But so it's really more of a quid pro quo approach 
And it's working because more and more countries are committing to supporting gains in community health and universal health coverage. So I think you're going to see that more as the, as, the, as the norm going forward. There's a lot to learn in how to structure those findings. And if you're a philanthropist backing, you know, an organization like Every Goods, that gives you way, way, way more leverage. So it's also another form of return on investment for you, which is, you know, if the government is now committing to pay for three of the four legs, well, you're instantly getting, you know, a 3x leverage on your philanthropic investment. We like to wrap up our episodes with a set of rapid fire questions. These are shorter questions, just a sentence or two, whatever comes to mind. The first question I gave to Chuck was, as an investor who supports a major fund, thinking back on the past few investments that you've made, what's one thing that really won you over to a successful pitch? I mean, I'll give you an example of one I just funded, which is in India. It's a group called Rocket Learning. This is a group that's focused on early childhood development. And what won me over is that it's a digital first intervention. It's using WhatsApp, which is the way that, you know, a huge portion of the developing world communicates now. It has strong evidence of, of outcomes on early childhood development. And as I said before, they're doing it at a fiscally feasible cost. So their cost per kid per year is under $2. Is it, it's one of the first times I said to a grantee, actually, I think you should be spending more per kids. <laughs> the other thing I love about Rocket Learning is they just have great leadership. You know, it's digital born. Nice. They're really, really smart. They're local. So nice. that, that's a, I think that's one of the best investments I've made in the last couple of years. Wow. Great to hear. On the advice front, if you could take a step back in time, what advice would you give your younger self? Oh, man. First of all, I'm a person, or a person that sort of lives by no regrets. So I, you know, that's my my default posture. Maybe you didn't. I don't think I did it right, but you know, you know, I think I would have tried to learn more early about two things. One is technology. I think I'm a little bit late to understand the importance of technology. I didn't <laughs> study it at all. I really didn't get into it until you know until my mid thirties. But the other is like everything we do in life is about people. I think if there's one thing we're under teaching in school, it's people kills. And, you know, there were too many things, particularly in the COVID things era. I did as a young manager that makes me wince now. And I, I wish we taught this more in, in high school, college and grad school. That would have, you yeah. know, I would have been happier. The people who worked for me in those days would have been part of me. <laughs> I think, I think I'm a little better, but uh, you know, 60 is still learning. <laughs> That's been a long time. Hopefully they've forgotten by now. Would you like to offer a shout out to someone who you consider to be a thought leader? God, there's so many. Can I, can I give three facts one? <laughs> sure. Oh, wow. Yeah, sure. By all means. You know, in digital <laughs> hell, I am, I'm really fascinated to watch what's happening in AI and in, in digital health. And there are two companies. One is called Babylon. The other one's called Ada, who who were around before ChatGPT, who I think are, are doing compelling work. There's some companies in the U.S. like Omada and Lavongo who are transforming how we use digital tools to manage chronic disease. I think everybody who works in healthcare should be watching those companies. In the emerging market, Debbie Rogers and Gustav Prekel at Reach. I'm a huge fan. Disclaimer, I fund them and I'm on their board, but I'm voting them at feet. And then in education, I love Sal Khan, the Khan Academy. And it, for those of your listeners who work in education, look at what Khan Academy is now doing with AI. It's super cool. 
AI-driven personalized tutoring. And they have a partnership with OpenAI. And uh, Sal's a great guy also. And I would watch them very closely if you work in education. That's really cool. On the reading front, what's one resource you use to stay up to date on what's going on in the industry? My, my podcast obsession is actually mostly about behavioral economics. So I listen to, you know, Freakonomics and people I mostly admire. And mostly because I think the other big skill set that we're missing in public health and education is around content and understanding how, we, how you drive behavior change. And these behavioral economists really, really have figured out stuff that we need to learn from in public health. There you have it, folks. That was Chuck Slaughter, entrepreneur, founder, donor, and investor. I hope you enjoyed our conversation about technology, financing, and how do you fit together the roles of the public and the private sector. If you're a funder or investor who wants to learn more about living goods, successes, and scar tissue along the digital transformation journey, you can send an email to info at livinggoods.org. And that's it. That was the last episode of season three and also the last episode of Aid Evolved. But don't go away. Be sure to subscribe. As I mentioned in the beginning, watch this space. We'll be back in a few weeks with a whole new look, a whole new lineup, and a new name. I think we haven't come up with a new jingle yet, though. So, if anyone knows a good song, please send it.